Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Uh, I'm Tom Keen in New York. Right now, Michael McKee with an important interview. Michael, this begins your coverage. It does indeed. The Jackson Hole Economic Symposium kicks off tonight at Jackson Lake Lodge outside of the town of Moran, Wyoming, about 30 miles north of Jackson. Esther George is the president of the Kansas City Fed. She is the host of the conference. She's also a voting member of the Open Market Committee. We sat down yesterday and we began with monetary policy. Let's get into monetary policy right away because that's what everybody wants to know about. You've dissented at every meeting uh, since you've been a voter because you argue the Fed should be raising interest rates. Would you still feel that way if today were September 21st and you were voting? Well, I haven't dissented at every meeting this year, but you're right. The most recent meeting, I did express my uh, view that I thought it was time to continue the process of normalization of interest rates. When I look at where we are with the job market, and when I look at inflation and our forecast for that, um, I think it's time to move. Where it will look by the September meeting, we'll have to wait and see if anything changes fundamentally. Well, you're looking at inflation in the job market. Are you a firm believer in the Phillips curve that it is going to bring us faster inflation as unemployment goes down? So I think we're beginning to see signs of that. I think we're seeing inflation strengthen. If you look at CPI, uh, it's beginning to show uh, some movement. So, yes, I think we should uh, expect that. Again, I don't think that we are going to need to have high interest rates. I don't think we need to cool off the economy by any means. But I do think that it would be appropriate to begin the process of continuing that normalization. Well, let me follow on that word. You say normalization. What is a normal interest rate in this post-crisis right. environment? So there are a lot of questions about that today, what is normal. And I think uh, there is scope to say, and you see this in the SEP and the dot plot forecast that the participants have been putting, that that terminal rate has been coming down. I think regardless of where you would peg that today, there is scope to begin to remove accommodation. So we are at negative real rates today, and whether we go back to something that looked normal pre-crisis, uh, or something less, I think we'll judge as we move along. Do you think monetary policy, uh, current monetary policy, is still stimulating the economy? I do. I, I think that we still have a lot of accommodation. We have a large balance sheet. Uh, we have negative real rates, and I think that is providing stimulus to the economy today. Now, as far as you're concerned, normalizing would be raising rates. Would you argue in favor of beginning to uh, stop reinvestment or even pare down the balance sheet? So I would be in favor of that. That was not uh, the majority view with the committee, but um, I thought opportunities to begin to 
uh, cease those reinvestments and let that balance sheet come down naturally would be an opportunity for us. And I hope there's a chance to talk about that as we go forward. Now, if you start to pare down the balance sheet, uh, there are banks that need more reserves these days. Uh, are you comfortable with holding a large balance sheet, even if it's not the size that it is today? So I'm comfortable with the principles that the FOMC has laid out, which is to return that balance sheet to the smallest size that's necessary to conduct monetary policy. Um, I don't think that's the size it is today. Uh, but again, that process will come later after we've uh, begun the, the short-term interest rate cycle. Now there is a, a a number there are a number of people on wall street analysts who started to warn that maybe the fed will have to move faster than the market is anticipating would you be in that camp you say that the fed should begin the process but how fast do you think you need to move well we began the process last december and uh, i like others thought the process would go gradually and i thought the economy would be best served by doing that but Excessive patience, uh, I think, is not warranted as we've seen the economy continue to uh, unfold the way it has with 4.9% unemployment rate and inflation look like it's moving back to target. I think we should continue that process. Well, where would your dot be in terms of 2017 uh, or 2018 uh, where the Fed funds rate should be? So my Fed funds rate has not come off markedly from what I think is a normal rate. I judge that every time to see whether something more fundamentally has changed. So as we look at the rate of growth in the economy um, and other factors, I'm open to that. But again, this is not an observable rate. It's hard to know uh, where that is. But I think under any metric that you use today, um, it would be time to move. I think most of our audience has probably heard the term "our star." It's become <laughs> uh, quite the, uh, the the trendy term these days. Basically, the argument that uh, the neutral rate of interest, which neither stimulates or retards the economy, has come way down. How much stock do you put in that argument? And if so, how much have you moved down, if at all? Because you say mm -hmm. you, you've kept yours pretty much in place. So I think it's possible that our star is lower today. But again. Uh, we don't know. And I think even if you assume that it is a lower number, that there is a lower terminal rate, uh, we would be stimulative even under that condition. So um, I think regardless, if you believe our star is lower, it might warrant that we should begin uh, moving a little more systematically than we have been. Well, one of the reasons it's lower is obviously that productivity has come down. And so the economy is growing at a slower pace. Do you have any theories or answers as to what's wrong with American productivity? So I buy into a lot of what I call partial answers to that, that uh, there was credit tightening early uh, in the recovery that we're going to suffer from in terms of productivity, that the economy moving from manufacturing to a more service-based economy has a different uh, effect in terms of labor saving uh, options there. So I think there are any number of explanations. I think the question is, is that a permanent state? Is it a, just a uh, near-term persistent state? Um, I think we'll have to just wait and see. Well, as Stanley Fisher would say, he's an optimist that it's not a permanent state. But do you have any idea what could turn this around? Would monetary policy play a role? Is it a fiscal role? Is it animal spirits? So I think that's a great question. My own view is uh, there are other economic policies 
that can influence productivity in a way that I think monetary policy cannot. And those ought to be things that um, other policymakers think about and think about what can affect the long run growth in the U.S. economy. John Williams in his paper suggested that we have seen sort of a secular change in inflation, that inflation dynamics may have changed uh, as our star has moved down and U-star has moved down. Uh, do you see, you, you're, you're very much an inflation hawk, do you see any secular change in inflation dynamics? So again, I think we're going through a period where it has been more difficult to explain what is pressing down on inflation. Uh, I think the oil price shock that we had, uh, the strong dollar, a number of things has, have influenced that. Again, whether that is a permanent state, um, I'm not ready to say because it looks to me like longer term inflation expectations have been anchored and that we are beginning to see wage growth moving away that would reflect a tighter labor market. So. I don't know that things have fundamentally changed at this point. Once again, your staff has come up with sort of the perfectly timed topic for uh, this meeting, basically looking at what monetary policy should be like in this new world going forward. And a number of members of the FOMC have come out with papers or uh, theories lately about this. Uh, do you think a fundamental change, a fundamental rethink in how monetary policy is conducted is necessary at this point? I'm not convinced, but that's why I'm very interested in this conference. Uh, there'll be some good papers coming forward, and I think one of the keys to this conference is that you look at these issues from both sides. So I'll be very interested in the discussion and to what extent, if any, a consensus comes out of this meeting about whether a different framework uh, will be needed going forward or whether, again, we can go back to uh, the kind of monetary policy that looked more conventional to us. I don't want to, uh, to, to, to say this the wrong way, but do you think Policymakers need to be more humble about what they can accomplish with monetary policy. Oh, I've always thought that. And I think, uh, again, we've gone through a terrible crisis. Uh, it did damage to the economy, and we know that can take a long time. So I wouldn't want to rush to assuming that we know what the future will look like. I think it's an appropriate time to raise some of these questions. Uh, but, yeah, I think all of us feel a uh, heavy dose of humility when we think about these issues. Now, before I let you go, I have to ask you about Fed uh, communications, because in the minutes recently there have been suggestions that members of the uh, Open Market Committee have not been happy with the way uh, they've communicated with the markets or the way the markets have interpreted things. Uh, this is an opportunity here for uh, a lot of members of the Open Market Committee to, to talk to the, to the markets. Uh, what are you doing wrong, if anything? Do you have a credibility problem, do you think? I don't know, Mike, if we have a credibility problem. I think we all come at these uh, issues uh, in different ways in terms of a policy prescription. I think the minutes um, are a good communication tool, and I think we're at a time, as you often are, in inflection points around raising rates where there are going to be different views around that. So. Um, I think the more we talk about uh, how we're each thinking about it, and I think the minutes show uh, how the committee forms consensus around that is probably the best tool for communications. Well, there are concerns that the Fed keeps suggesting we're going to raise interest rates. The markets start to price in a move, and then it's taken off the table. And people are starting to say, the people who, who, who talk to me are starting to say, we sort of have to write them out of the equation unless we're absolutely guaranteed because you know they're just going to put it out there and pull it back again. Well, 
I think what you've seen are people that are watching uh, the data and reacting to that. Uh, it's very important that we be data dependent, but that doesn't mean to be immobilized uh, by short-term views. So keeping a focus on that medium-term outlook for me um, is where I'm trying to keep my focus, thinking about what is in the long-run interest of the economy and the ability to achieve sustained growth um, is where my focus is. Let me ask you a last question. This is the 40th year for uh, the, the Kansas City Fed Symposium. 38 of those years, uh, the chair or vice chair came and gave a keynote address that went along with the theme of the conference and wasn't particularly newsworthy. Ben Bernanke came out here twice and laid out policy and moved the markets. Janet Yellen is going to be kicking off your conference, mm -hmm. and the markets are expecting something from her. Do you want this to be a place where the Fed is making policy pronouncements for the markets? The chair uh, decides what she will address there, and I don't know what her uh, remarks are for tomorrow, so we'll all be staying tuned uh, to what she says. I mean, ha has the conference gotten a little too important to the markets in terms of short-term movements as opposed to what it was originally designed for? Oh, I think this is a function of the time we're in in the market, that there is a lot of attention on central banks generally and certainly the Federal Reserve now. And I look forward to a time where that is not the key focus uh, for markets. The purpose of our conference here is not a policy platform. That's what the FOMC is for. And so uh, we will continue to keep our focus on issues that we think are important to central banks. Uh, that's my goal for the symposium. Well, we'll listen throughout the symposium and we'll hear from Janet Yellen at 10 o'clock Wall Street time on Friday. Indeed, we Esther will. Esther George, thank you very much for thank joining you, us today. So we're going to flip things on their head with Howard Ward. As we are speaking on television with Mr. Ward about Apple, we're going to continue that discussion right now and then get to the bigger picture here uh, in a, a bit. Apple is at a low multiple. Howard Ward, let's back up and just simply, why is there an almost nifty-fifty feel to the market and Apple's not part of that, that family? Well, Tom, because uh, you know earnings have not grown uh, very much in the last couple of years, and you know their success has been uh, almost to their detriment because they've become so big. So, so we are looking forward to fiscal 17 and fiscal 18, where we're going to see renewed growth in Apple's earnings. Uh, of course, they have a new phone coming out later this year. Um, there will be a bigger, better, more bells and whistles phone a year from now because they're going to be celebrating the 10th anniversary of iPhone. So Tim Cook has his <clears throat> fifth anniversary right. now. The iPhone's going to have a 10-year anniversary next year. They're going to make a big deal out of that. And so, uh, you know, w we are looking forward to, uh, you know, upgrades to the new phone uh, later this year and then again next year. But next year is going to get the, give you the bigger pop. Revenues are flat. Earnings are flat wherever you are in the income state. Maybe those are flow analysis. But that weight, that stock of free cash flow is still extraordinary. Why doesn't the yeah. market value that? Well, the market, uh, uh, I, think over, I think over time it will. Uh, the company's generating around $50 billion a year in, in, in free cash flow, which is very significant. They have a couple hundred billion dollars of, of cash on the balance sheet. Now, a lot of that cash is overseas. I think that 
Uh, we'd like to see corporate tax reform to allow them to repatriate that capital without subjecting it to a 35% tax. I think Apple would like to probably use that cash, or a big chunk of it anyway, for a, an acquisition. And that acquisition, whatever it is, whenever it comes, if mm -hmm. it comes, could be important in determining the multiple of earnings that people pay for Apple stock, because it's hard for me to see Apple buying anything that could result in a lower multiple than they currently have. Tom, we have some really interesting headlines crossing the Bloomberg professional right now. Uh, Mylan and its EpiPen cost that has caused so much controversy in the yeah. political world over the last 24 hours. They are announcing immediate plans to cut the cost of the EpiPen. They'll cover up to $300 of the out-of-pocket cost by selling the auto injector, this is epinephrine, uh, to directly to patients. And they're going to uh, double eligibility for a patient assistance program. The increase in prices <clears throat> that the right. politicians are decrying has gotten action. Absolutely extraordinary. I don't believe, Michael McKee, I've ever really seen the drama of that. And it's wonderful to have Howard Ward with us. Howard, you and I were weaned on a big pharma that was literally like the big three in Detroit. Boy, has the game changed for our pharmaceuticals and drugs. What is your opportunity there when you see this kind of historic headline? Well, first of all, I, I, have to, I will congratulate Mylan for taking the action that they're taking. I don't know if they're cutting the price enough, considering that they raised it by over 500%. Right. Uh, by which I think is outrageous. There's just your your healthcare company needs to be about more than simply the bottom line, and, and that's price but gouging to the tenth degree. Howard Ward is Merck today anything like the Merck of yours and my Ute? Uh, Tom Merck remains a terrific uh, uh, scientific-based research pharmaceutical company, but uh, growth in pharmaceuticals is not what it used to be. They have some, obviously they're doing very well with their new immunotherapy drug, uh, which has recently gotten a little bit uh, better publicity due to Bristol's misstep in their clinical three trial for their Obdivo uh, competing drug. I actually would prefer Bristol here. I think Bristol really is the leader in immunotherapy. I think Bristol is a uh, better uh, play on anti-cancer drugs. The stock's down over 20%, uh, all because of the failed trial uh, in, in Opdivo for lung cancer. Uh, that trial was a broader trial. They went for a broader label than Merck went for with their approval, mm -hmm. and, and that was probably their undoing. Uh, but this is going to continue to be. So this is going to be maybe an eight billion dollar drug instead of a ten, instead of a twelve billion dollar drug. Uh, it, it's a terrific product. Uh, Bristol is the one I would go with. Uh, dividend uh, in excess of two percent and, and and strong double digit growth over the next several years. Would you go with it uh, outside of just looking at a winner in the pharma space? And, the, and I ask that because we keep hearing about how hard it is for pharmaceutical companies to develop drugs. Uh, anymore that have a significantly long shelf life and a, a very high expected rate of return as they used to do. And so is, is pharma still uh, a key area to get into? Well, you know, the multiples have come down on, uh, on a lot of most of the, these companies uh, compared to the, the 1980s, let's say, and early 90s, uh, you know, which was really a terrific time for, for big pharma. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, huge new drug discovery is very difficult. The, the, the low-hanging fruit has been picked. 
and uh, you're getting you know much more price competition, believe it or not, uh, uh, mm -hmm. than we had in the past because of alternative use, uh, alternative drugs, competing drugs because of generic drugs mm -hmm. and because of the kind of pushback that uh, th that the media can now provide when it finds uh, situations like it discovered with the EpiPen, which were simply outrageous. What do you do, Howard Ward, with the success that you have? You're in a blue chip stock and. Up, up it goes, and it's trading at a big, fat 20-plus multiple. Do you hold those shares? Do you use the proverbial phrase, lighten up? Because I know you don't sell the whole position out. What do you do? Well, Tom, I think that in, in, in the situation like Bristol-Myers, and I could throw Allergan into the same category because Allergan stock is also down over 20% and represents real value within the pharma sector. It's a, a different take on the business than Bristol because a lot of it's aesthetics and, and they have a big eye-oriented business. Uh, but the stock is, is, is very good value here, uh, a strong balance sheet, $5 billion of buybacks between now and year-end are in the making, $27 billion of cash on the balance yeah. sheet. So there is value in the pharma names. The, uh, the multiples have come down. I, I think that you, you have to try to put blinders on and ignore the very uh, sharp volatility in these stocks on every data point. Uh, it, it's a little bit overdone. It's a little bit silly. Right. It's momentum-driven. It's ETF-driven. So, so I think you have to look at the numbers, redo your numbers, right. rebase your numbers. What do you have to do? If the numbers still make sense, you have to stay right. with these stocks. 30 seconds away from your world, is there a bond bubble? Because I know you're going to tell me, Howard Ward, there's not an equity bubble, but price up, yield down, negative yields and all the distortion. Is that what you're working with in equities is on the other side of the, the aisle? Well, we got a bubble? The 10-year Treasury is selling at 65 times its coupon. We talk about price-earnings ratios on stocks. Let's talk about price-coupon on bond. I like 65 that. times the coupon. The coupon isn't growing. The principal isn't growing, and the, the, the coupon is 2% or less. Why would you buy that? The stocks give you a 2% dividend right. yield. The dividend grows. The earnings grow. Money's got to Let's go Let's come stocks. back. Howard Ward, it's great that we have a disparity of presidents and governors as well. Do you give a tilt to the monetary theorists of the Fed, or do you like feet on the ground realists like Esther George? Oh, Tom, I'm a practical guy. I'm probably a little, I'm probably just split it right down the middle there. I think the theory is great, but you've got to be willing to look at the real picture and see you know, how monetary policy works over time. And it doesn't always work. And we're seeing a little bit of that right now, I think. Well, the big question out here is, what does Janet Yellen say? There's a fascinating, and this is, uh, Tom, I found this uh, absolutely fascinating, fascinating statistic out from Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Economist Michael McDonough. Uh, so far, year to date, Janet Yellen has delivered only two official speeches since 1996, the Fed chair has averaged 19 official speeches a year. Is it harder, Howard, to discern what's going on when you don't hear from the horse at the center of it all? Yes, yeah, so, Mike, I'm a bit of a dinosaur on this topic. I am not in favor of Fed transparency. I would prefer a Fed that did not have press conferences and did not immediately tell the world uh, what its decisions were. I'd like to go back to the world where investors were kept on edge and they had to try to read the tea leaves, uh, by uh, watching Fed funds and, and uh, money supply rates of growth in order to determine what the Fed was doing. Uh, I, I think that 
the current situation lends itself to uh, actually market volatility because it pushes everybody on one side of the boat if they know exactly what the Fed's going to do. And that was, I think, a necessary thing to do perhaps in the aftermath of 08 when the Fed really wanted to make it so clear that they weren't going to tighten for, for a long, long time. But it starts to work perhaps against you if when you get into a period where you, maybe rates need to go up. And, and you're constantly talking about the need to raise rates, and now you can't do it. I just wish the Fed would get out of it. I don't like the idea of all the Fed gov or so many Fed governors constantly in the press expressing their own points of view. Well, do you think the Fed has lost some credibility? It used to be able to jawbone the markets the way it wanted to go uh, without actually raising or lowering rates. Have they lost that credibility? I think they've lost some credibility, and I think you're going to hear Janet Yellen tomorrow uh, sort of make it very clear that the Fed is very close to raising rates. I think she's going to want to uh, provide the, the uh, uh, a, a talk that makes you wonder maybe she will raise rates in September, but I don't really see the case for that right now. I know she's trained as a labor economist. We've had a, a few uh, strong months of payroll growth, but beyond that, I don't see the okay. case for raising rates right now. What I find absolutely bizarre about this, Howard Ward, is that we're at 0 0.50 Mike, what are they going to go to? 0 0.75, 1.00? Well, it would be, if they go 25 basis points, it would be a range. They would raise it to a range between just, 50 and 75 just basis picking points. May of 05, 3%. Howard, we are so far from normal, aren't we? Tom, I don't know how long it's going to take to get back to 3%. Uh, we may both be retired by then. Well, I'm not going to be retired enjoying... Um, the tuition flow. Mike, 10 years ago when you were catching sturgeon in Yellowstone Park, 5.25% 10 years ago. Yeah, well, it just shows how, how much uh, things have changed because there are no sturgeon in, in, in the park, but that's okay. Well, I just brought that up because Howard, Howard Ward was a dinosaur, so I thought <laughs> well, I'd bring but, up sturgeon but, but as well. The, the average yield on the 10 year Treasury for the last 35 years is about 6%. Uh, which, of course, was pretty good competition right. for stocks in any normal world. But that's now right. 1.5%, and Lord only knows when right. we're going to ever get back to 6%. Howard, thank you so much. It's exceptionally valuable this morning, particularly that analysis of P.E. of bonds compared to P.E.s of the equity markets. Mr. Ward is with Gamco. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. We now need to have a moment of silence for Dr. Schiller up at Brown University, of course, running the shop there on their esteemed political uh, science study. Introduction to the American political process. Wendy, is that a comedy course up at Brown this year? How do you rewrite the curricula for the dewy-eyed freshman crew? It is, a, it is going to be a big challenge this year. I'm telling you, I've been working on it for the last couple of weeks. Mm trying to revamp it, trying to keep everybody calm, trying to instill some faith in the Constitution. Uh, we start with the Constitution, which I think is always a great place to start. Yes. I'll go with that. Two weeks ago, Wendy, I was in scenic Williamstown, Massachusetts. There's a small college up there you may have heard of. 
And I attended the graveyard of Williams going back to colonial time. And there was the new grave of James McGregor Burns, who's one of yours and my heroes. Uh, uh, Professor uh, Burns died, Jim Burns uh, passing away two years ago after an extraordinary contribution to our political science and history. I would suggest Professor Burns of Williams College wouldn't recognize this presidential race. What would you say to Jim Burns? Well, you know, what's fascinating to me is that on the Republican side, this race has been completely non-traditional. It's really upended the party. On the Democratic side, it doesn't look that new. It doesn't, you know, I mean, Hillary Clinton was a front-runner. Hillary Clinton defeated a strong challenger. The Democrats traditionally have a lot of people running for president. So this is unusual for the Democrats, but things worked out as they planned them to work out. But for the Republicans, I think it's the dialogue. I think what McGregor Burns and a lot of political scientists, particularly going back uh, even further, V.O. Key, E.E. Schneider, who were sort of formed under, you know, communism right. and um, fascism, they would worry a great deal about campaigns that are run on a platform that seeks to divide, because that's the, the big sort of challenge for the United States of America, not to get divided over these kinds of differences, uh, which make our country sort of unique on the planet. Jacob Viner, middle of the 20th century. The iconic paper on mercantilism, everybody at gunpoint is forced to read it. Is Donald Trump running on nothing more than economic mercantilism within the political space? I think he's running on really old-fashioned demagogic populism. Um, And I think he is much more like a 19th century robber baron or a 19th century, you know, very wealthy person who has the money and the time and thinks politicians don't do their job and, you know, decided how much can I upend this system just by running. And in in some ways, I hope nobody gets really angry with me about this, but I think that he's doing us a favor in the sense that he's exposing a lot of flaws in our nomination system, in sort of the rhetoric that Republicans have been using for a long time about government and about minorities. Minorities, um, challenging the Democrats to come up with something better than they've had for the last 40 years. There's a lot of ways in which, had he run a different campaign, right. he could have really pushed the system forward. Um, I'm not sure it's too late for that, but it, he's running out of time. Yeah, and the, the paper, again, I forgot to cite it, folks, Power versus Plenty, Viner of 1948, is, is a classic. Help me here. There's like eight ways to go here, Wendy, but in the time that we have with you uh, in this half hour, Professor Schiller, Help me with where the Republican Party goes the first Wednesday of November. I'm fascinated by, like, what does the Bush family do? Or what what does the Senate majority leader do? Well, I think um, a couple of things happen. I mean, I think the biggest question mark is the House of Representatives for the Republican Party, because that really has been the site of the most turmoil and the greatest dysfunction within the Republican Party. And the question is, do they lose seats, and how many seats do they lose? I don't think today, looking forward, they're going to lose control of the House. But if they lose a lot of seats, those seats are likely to be moderate to competitive. There aren't that many of them left. And the, the people who will be left are be very, very conservative Republicans. So the problem for the Republican Party moving forward is that their their composition in the House in particular and even the Senate will be more conservative, not less, after November if things go the way that we think they will, which makes it even harder to move that party forward. You cannot win the White House on the platform that they currently embrace. I think that's pretty clear. And so if that becomes yeah. if that becomes the fact um, Wednesday afterwards, Paul Ryan has to figure out a way to a recruit new kinds of people to 
run for the Republican Party, which is what Newt Gingrich did in 94, which was very successful, and figure out a way to update this party. What can help him are Republican governors. Republican governors, are some of them are very conservative, but they are by sort of fact of life much more moderate in the way that they have to deal with running their states than members of Congress. And I see the moderation actually coming from the Republican governors rather than inside the House of Representatives after the, uh, November 8th. Within this is the arch question of all Democrats and Republicans. I want to get to the flip-flop on immigration here in a moment. I, I say that without political aspersion to Mr. Trump, but that's the topic du jour. But Professor Schiller, if, if I look at this, everybody wants to know, what does Speaker Ryan do? Is he waiting for a moment, or does he just shut his lip until we get to November? He stays quiet. I mean, you know, this is a guy who's young, who's looking towards the future. Absolutely. Right? So he's got to stay quiet because in the end of the day, unlike the Democratic Party, uh, party loyalty used to be sort of a code of honor for the Republican Party. And I still think among a lot of people, particularly uh, donors, particularly longtime GOP supporters, that you are loyal. And, and I think Ryan can't go out there and say, this guy really shouldn't be president of the United States. I just think that ends his career right now in the Republican Party. And I just think he can't do it. Ted Cruz did it, essentially, and sort of made him sort of the black sheep pariah. He was already the black sheep pariah in Washington. But I think that that means the battle for the soul of the party moves to 2020. And I think that's what the Republicans think. And Ryan has already told wealthy donors, look, we might lose the House. You have to help us. What I'm looking for when I see September and I'm looking at campaign ads and strategies, what you're seeing, do Republicans who are in trouble actively run against Trump? Do they actually start to run ads saying, elect me, Hillary Clinton's going to be president, I'll stop. Okay, the American Presidency, Brown University, POLS 1130. Uh, Professor Schiller, real simple, Woodrow Wilson was sick. We all know that. We've all read the history, and there's other stories of other presidents. Many would say that Bush Sr. was very, very exhausted at the end of his presidency. I say that with great uh, respect for the war veteran. Do we care about the health of candidates, or do we get physicals after they're elected? No, I mean, I think we should care about the health candidates. I think that's one of the reasons why a younger candidate always appeals. Yeah, but we don't have that. Right, we don't have that. But Ronald Reagan, you know, 36 years ago was older, you know, or as the same age as Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. That was a long time ago before a lot of diagnostic and medical advances. So, and we know that his mind started to falter <sighs> at the end. But I think what both candidates have done that is really smart is pick very qualified VPs. You may disagree with their ideologies, but I think Mike Penn and Tim Kaine can run the country. And I think knowing that Mm -hmm. makes it a little bit more powerful and a little bit less worrisome uh, about the health of either primary candidate, uh, you know, frontrunner candidate. Now, if something happens before the election, we run into very major problems. But but I think that's what I thought both candidates did. That was both super smart moves. Pick people that nobody thinks can't run the country if something happens to me. Professor Schiller, I want to cut through the hot air. What is the history of monumental changes in policy by candidates? We're observing that now with Mr. Trump on immigration. When you're sitting in your office at Brown, 
What do you observe? Well, I mean, we've seen a little bit of this, right? I mean, John Kerry was accused of this uh, in 2004. Uh, the Iraq War becomes a whole sort of uh, when did I say it, when did I oppose it, when did I favor it. So that, that sort of engulfed a lot of people, including Hillary Clinton. Um, but this, if he sticks with the flip-flop. Now, remember, Trump changes his mind and changes what he says, like, on a literally weekly, if not sometimes daily basis. So since he hasn't really put forth a detailed plan on immigration, I think he's got some wiggle room with uh, sort of people who haven't decided yet. His followers believe that this was the fundamental core of his platform. So how he goes out and explains this to people, I don't know. But it may be that the core that like Donald Trump, we're looking about 38% of the country at the moment, if you look at sort of the average of the polls, uh, that they are going to vote for him no matter what. And then there's another bunch of people who are going to vote for him because he's the Republican nominee. So he has some carte blanche to do what he wants. Uh, in terms of flip-flopping, the question is, you know, does he pick up anybody who might be on the fence? And I just don't think he does. I think that certainly Latinos, um, I don't think, are a receptive audience to that message. They don't believe him. The problem with flip-flopping is it completely destroys your credibility. Yeah, that's uh, the, the question I have. Does, does uh, Donald Trump lose everybody who got him this far? No. Is there any way he can, he can really hold on to the core if he switches that position? No, because he started out as sort of, let's bash the other, uh, let's deport them, let's, you know, they're the bad guys, we're the good guys, but it's morphed into a com complete sort of movement to regain America. So anybody who sees themselves as part of that movement, mostly white, uh, to some extent male, uh, will still look to Trump to guide them to their promised land. And so I don't think anything really shakes their attachment to Trump now. It's moved beyond what he said in terms of policy to sort of what he represents. And they perceive him as representing their interests and who they are, and they feel left behind. And I think Democrats or liberals or anybody else who wants to stop Trump can't underestimate that sense of frustration, particularly in some parts of the country. So I don't think it matters that much to his supporters. I don't think it's going to turn them off. Uh, I think conservatives who don't trust him will just point to it as another reason not to trust him. But they're not voting for him anyway. Well, speaking of trust, Greg Valle of Horizon Investments writes this morning that the most important person in this election may be Julian Assange. He's going to probably drop some very damaging WikiLeaks uh, documents in October timed to hurt Hillary Clinton. I think, I, I really believe that most of the damage that has been done to Hillary Clinton is self-inflicted. I think this is the Clinton problem, going back to Bill, The Clintons self-inflict damage on themselves. They make decisions that are questionable in terms of judgment. It doesn't mean she can't run the country. And I think the big advantage Hillary Clinton has running against Donald Trump is, is that people believe, no matter what else you think about her, she can run the country. And she's a moderating force. And right now, it looks like her campaign today with their expected speech yeah. wants to pivot away from Hillary Clinton, per se, and sort of what kind of America right. do you want, right? What kind of America do you want? What kind of a movement do you want to be part of away from her? I don't think anything they leaked about her, really, honestly, moving forward, unless she actually, you know, killed somebody, uh, I think um, nothing will damage her among her core supporters either. Uh, and it right. isn't about Hillary's trustworthiness. I think that question has been asked and answered. People have doubts. It's about whether yeah. she will be a good president in terms of running the country, and I think a lot right. of people think that she will. Professor, thank you so much. Wendy Schiller will speak to her more as we get to the uh, uh, campaign, to the election, rather, and I can't say enough about uh, her effort at Brown University to reinvigorate American politics. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.